Runoff, a crime novel about election fraud, evokes a curious timelessness of classic detective fiction. A noir gem, says Mystery Scene Magazine. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 13 Surefire Cellar The next morning I stopped by my friendly neighborhood police station to report the assault, which in my case meant visiting the one on Eddy Street in District J, San Francisco's seedy Tenderloin neighborhood. I stood in line between a twitchy guy and a NASCAR windbreaker in Garden Clogs, who filed a report for grand theft by a prostitute and a woman in a waitress uniform who told me that someone had stolen a 30-gallon plastic barrel of vegetable oil from the back of her cafe. My turn with the desk sergeant generated a stifled yawn and five minutes of typing on a beat-up computer whose worn keys were haloed with greasy black grime. I reported the barest details about the crime, not identifying Lisa or mentioning my employment with the dragon lady. I stood on the sidewalk in front of the station considering my options. Some, like methamphetamine and oral sex, were suggested to me by the denizens of the tenderloin trooping by me, apparently undaunted by the proximity of the police. Others, like paying a visit to the remaining mayoral contenders from the November election, Alan Chow or Hunter Loudon, I came up with by myself. In the end, I decided to visit Chow since I particularly wanted his perspective on the election, and I also hoped he would be able to provide insight into the motives for last night's kidnap attempt. He had to know Chinatown and the Dragon Lady's place in it better than me. I had done enough research on Chow to know he owned a gift shop on Grant Avenue in Chinatown called the Oriental Eye. When I inquired for him at the shop, The sales clerk directed me one block west to a narrow building on Waverly Place that might best be described as multi-use. On the bottom floor was an herb shop. Floors two through four appeared to be offices, and the top floor and the balcony were given over to apartment dwellers and their possessions, including a full line of laundry snapping in the breeze and a screen of towering bamboo trees and a cast iron planter. The door leading upstairs had a lock on it, but someone had propped it open with one of the cobblestones that had proved so handy in my battle with the ATM thief. Chow's office was on the second floor. Inside, I found a pear-shaped guy with a nearly bald head, heavy black-rimmed glasses, and a cigar clamped in his jaw at a 45-degree angle like a mortar. He could have been a Chinese Winston Churchill, He was sitting at the reception desk with packages piled around him on the floor, the desk, and most of the horizontal surfaces within reach. He looked something like the pictures of Chow that I'd seen in the paper, but the glasses and the cigar threw me for a loop. We don't accept vendor packages in the morning, he said when I hesitated. Come back after two when my secretary is here. I'm not selling anything. 
Then all the buying is done at our shop, a block over on Grant. I advanced to a spot in front of the desk. From this proximity, the smoke from a cigar had all this subtle bouquet of smoldering insoles. I'm not really buying either. I'm working for Lenora Lee. She hired me to, yeah, yeah, investigate the election. She told me you might come by. I wanted to ask you a few questions. Can you talk now? Sure. He took the cigar out of his mouth and waved it around vaguely. That is, if you don't mind talking while I work. I've got about three months' worth of samples piled up, courtesy of the time I wasted on the election. Now I've got to go through them and see if I'm missing out on any surefire sellers. Not that it's very likely. There are just so many kinds of back-scratchers we can pawn off on you unsuspecting round eyes. I pulled up a flimsy director's chair and set it down in front of his desk. Round eyes, huh? I heard a different term last night. Chow set a cigar into an ashtray fashioned out of an abalone shell. That doesn't surprise me. I believe the term round eyes was made up by a member of your race. Mao, on the other hand was actually more concerned with your noses. He called Caucasians Dabizi, which literally means big nose. So did we big noses steal the mayoral election away from you? He laughed and leaned down to pick up a small box from a pile to the left of his desk. Now there's a loaded question, he said when he straightened up. Do I think the results were fishy? Absolutely, particularly in the Chinese districts but there's no way I was going to win the election outright. So I'd be hard-pressed to say it was stolen from me, and I'd be even harder-pressed to assign blame. If you didn't think you could win the election, why did you run? He tore open the lid of a box he was holding and prized out a clear plastic globe filled with liquid. He held it aloft, swirling the contents as he did so. A great wall snow globe. How about it? Would you buy one? I shook my head. Neither would I. He returned the globe to the box and tossed it into a discard pile on the other side of the desk. Why did I run, you said. I'm surprised at you. I ran because the dragon lady wanted me to, and to help me build a base for future elections, maybe a go at a seat on the board of supervisors. I nodded and watched as he leaned to pick up another package. You said the results were fishy. Say for the sake of argument that the election was fixed. Mrs. Lee is convinced one of Padilla's supporters is responsible and suggested that real estate and housing would be the primary motive. I understand it's a hot issue in San Francisco, but what makes it worth this amount of effort and risk to get your candidate into the mayor's office? Can the mayor actually influence things that much? He picked up the cigar and clamped it into his teeth again. I can tell you one thing that might make it worth it. Hunter's point. In the next term, the mayor and the board of supervisors will select a contractor to redevelop 500 acres of land from the shipyard. 500 acres in a city with some of the highest-priced real estate in the world. Current plans call for construction of 1,200 homes and a 20,000-square-foot neighborhood retail center in the first phase alone. I knew Congress had authorized transfer of the former naval shipyard at Hunter's Point to the city, and I knew the Navy had been spending millions to clean up the pollution 
and toxic waste that remained from their operations. But I didn't realize the cleanup was nearing completion. That would be a lot of affordable housing for the Padilla camp, assuming you agree with the Dragon Lady's assertion that they are the ones who finagled the election. Chow puffed a fresh cloud of smoke into the atmosphere as he fought with a strapping tape that sealed the carton he'd selected. It opened with a loud rip, and he slumped back in his chair with a winded look. His people would be the obvious choice, sure. I don't think Padilla himself would get involved, but there are some real zealots involved in his campaign. Like his campaign manager, Kathleen Husitz? Kathleen Wilmot. Zealot isn't the label that first comes to mind for her. Really? What is? Bitch. I reached down to rub the bruise on my shin, which didn't help my shin any, but sure made the cut in my side smart. She does seem pretty dedicated to Padilla's cause, though. She's got to qualify as a zealoty bitch, at least. Yes, but she knows where to draw the line. I don't think she would put Padilla's whole political future at risk by doing something that far beyond the pale. A minor league dirty trick or two, maybe, but not election fixing. Okay, then. Who else? Chow reached into his carton and pulled out a rectangular item wrapped in tissue paper about the size of a lunchbox. When I saw the handle sticking out of it, I realized it was a lunchbox. Oh, There are a lot of choices, he said, but I'll give you two of my favorites. The first would be Ciudad Verde. That translates to Green City for you round-eyed gringo types. Their goal is to stop further gentrification of the mission district, and they're none too squeamish about the techniques they use. They start with picketing planning commission meetings and escalate all the way up to sabotage of developers' construction sites. Then you've got the Feral Collective. They're an anarchist group that is particularly concerned with a homeless issue. They maintain a list of vacant properties throughout the city, so the homeless and the poor can easily locate places to squat. But I thought anarchists wanted to undermine government. Why would they care about an election? What? You don't think causing a candidate who received a minority of the votes to win the election undermines government? Oh. Chow stopped worrying at the tape and simply tore off the tissue paper. He held the box out so I could see it. It was a standard-issue kid's lunchbox, except instead of a cartoon show or a comic book hero, it was decorated with an illustration from an old Chinese advertisement. Here's something a little different. The artwork comes from a 1930s poster. It says, Shanghai Movie Star Brand Perfume. Buy it anywhere. Nice-looking girl, don't you think? The girl on the lunchbox was pictured in her underwear, sitting demurely on a couch in her bathroom. A toddler in diapers standing next to her was passing her a bottle of perfume to apply. They both seemed pretty pleased about the prospect. Yeah, I agreed. She's a cutie, all right. Remind you of anyone? What are you getting at? He laughed. Have you heard the expression, yellow fever, Mr. Reardon? Sure, it's some kind of tropical disease. It's also slang to describe a Caucasian who is attracted to Asian women, as in, he's got yellow fever. Don't you think the girl on the lunchbox looks a little like Lisa Lee? 
I felt the heat rise in my face and settle in the tips of my ears, which, if the burning sensation meant anything, must have been glowing like the tail fins of a 59 caddy. I opened my mouth to speak, but didn't manage to expel any words. Relax. Before you go confessing to any more than you should, let me just say that any time Miss Chinatown gets attacked while being escorted by a Da BZ, we in the neighborhood hear about it. And exactly what did you hear? Chow tapped an ash the size of a New York cockroach into the abalone shell and left the cigar smoking beside it. Oh, I heard that you were brave and fought off her attacker and all that. The surprising bit is anyone Chinese would dare to attack the dragon lady's daughter in the first place. So who did? A good guess would be Wo Hop To. He stared at me like we were on stage, and he was waiting for me to produce a forgotten line. Then he reached for another package. Who are they? I said. One of the Chinatown gangs? He frowned as he examined the padded envelope he had picked up. What do you know about gang activity in Chinatown, Mr. Reardon? I remember the Joe boys and the shooting at the Golden Dragon restaurant. The shooting had taken place in September 1977 and was the worst gang-related violence in Chinatown for 50 years, with five killed and 11 wounded. Forget the Joe boys. There is only one gang in Chinatown, Wo Hop To. They either absorbed or drove out of business all the others, the Joe Boys, Wa Ching, and Hop Sing Tong. They are the real deal, a professional triad from Hong Kong. The others were amateurish street gangs by comparison. So what do they want with Lisa Lee? He shrugged and picked up the cigar again. Lenora is not without enemies in Chinatown. She is an ambitious woman and doesn't hesitate to intimidate, browbeat, or otherwise bulldoze anyone who stands in her way. Wohop Toe is involved in many illegal activities. Everything from fireworks, to prostitution, to smuggling of immigrants. But they also have legitimate business interests. It would not surprise me if Lenora's interests and the interests of Wohop Toe are sometimes, or even often, in conflict. They might have attempted to kidnap Lisa as a way to get leverage on her. What about fixing the election? Could they have pulled that off? Chow grinned. Very good. I wondered if you were going to put that together. Now you understand why I wasn't so quick to assign blame to the Padilla camp. Yes, Wohop Tau might have fixed the election. They certainly have the technical sophistication to do so. In fact, they strike me as being more technically sophisticated than any of Padilla's fellow travelers. They are also much more likely to have bloodied their hands with the murder of Director Bowman, assuming it is related. But if they did fix the November election, I have to assume they are finished with that stratagem. Their goal would have been to knock me out of the running so the Dragon Lady lost face and influence. They wouldn't bother with the runoff. More risk of being caught and no real reason to favor one candidate over the other. I put my foot against Chow's desk and leaned the director's chair back an inch or two. When I walked in here, I had only the vaguest idea about suspects. Now I had three. Ciudad Verde, Faro Collective, 
and Wo Hop To. I guessed that was progress. I realized I probably could get leads on the first two organizations, but I wasn't sure about the latter. Okay, I said. That makes sense. What else can you tell me about Wohop Toe? Who's the head man? He turned his envelope over and took hold of the little pull tab to open it. The organization is still run from Hong Kong, but the local boss is a gigantic tub of lard with the colorful name of Tony Squidboy Woo. He runs a dim sum place over on Sacramento. Chow yanked on the envelope tab and there was a muffled whooshing noise like a road flare being lit. Flames shot out from the opening. Chow yelped and launched the package across the room, where it bounced off the wall and landed on the floor amongst a pile of still more samples. There was a tremendous flash and then a concussive bang that pitched me over backwards. I lay on the floor as steel-gray smoke roiled over me. Bits of charred paper and other particulate, settling all around like confetti from a parade. Chow managed to speak first. Most of it was Chinese, but I understood the fuck me part. I disentangled myself from the director's chair and stood up. There was a small fire going in the cardboard debris where the bomb had gone off. The wall near the explosion was scorched black, and the air at this height had a suffocating sulfuric tang to it that made it difficult to breathe. Chow looked at me from across the desk with his glasses askew, and his cigar nearly bit through in two pieces. He looked frazzled, but otherwise intact. He rose, stubbed out the cigar, and hustled through a doorway to the side that appeared to lead to a kitchen or utility room. When he returned, he had a small fire extinguisher in his hands. I met him by the flames, and together we stamped and sprayed them out. Although the fire was extinguished, the smoke in the room was now thicker than ever, and we had both begun coughing. I pointed at the door, and Chow nodded. By the time we made it to the ground floor, several of the building's smoke detectors were ringing, and at least two sirens could be heard in the background. Chow leaned over with his hands on his knees. He spat on the ground. You know what I think? I said between coughs. I can guess, but lay it on me anyway. I don't think you should stalk that one. He looked up at me with a martyred expression. What I figured... You have been listening to Runoff, a book hard-boiled great James Crumley described as a smart, funny, spooky, often touching, always entertaining romp. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.